Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next 50 years. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Hi, I'm Samtha Kundu. I'm a contributing host for today's episode of Biotech 2050. I should also mention we are recording in the offices of Clora. Clora is a technology platform that is organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise in order to accelerate the development of new therapeutics. I'm delighted to introduce our podcast guest today, Joe Viney, who is co-founder, president, and CSO of Pandion Therapeutics. I'll hand it over to Joe so she can provide her background and the background of the company. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Samta, for that great introduction. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I'm currently in a startup company. We're about two and a half years old right now. I was the first employee and uh, sat on my own for about three months. So very similar to many other people who work in the biotech space here in Boston. But prior to Pandian Therapeutics, I'd only ever worked in large companies. So my background is actually as a large molecule and small molecule drug developer at a number of the big companies. I came to the US in the mid-90s to do a postdoc at Genentech, was completely smitten by the biotech industry. And after a couple of years in San Francisco, I moved up to Seattle, joined a company called Immunex, which was subsequently acquired by Amgen. So I spent about 16 years there when I moved here to work at Biogen. And how I've ended up in a small biotech company, it's very hard to work in the Boston area and not see all the stories about startup companies and the entrepreneurial spirit that can occur in these companies. So very excited to be associated with Pandian. Um, It was a great experience starting the company. And uh, we're focused on biologics, and I'd love to tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. We're making bispecifics to drive localized modulation of the immune system in sites where there's inflammation. So very focused on targeting autoimmune diseases, things like inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune liver diseases, type 1 diabetes, and skin inflammation. So a number of different opportunities that we have, and it's uh, an exciting time to be working in biotech here. Now, since you've uh, sort of seen both East Coast and West Coast, which do you prefer from an entrepreneurial biotech perspective? Well, I thought you were going to say for the weather. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, I hate to say it, but uh, you know, I'm British, and so the Seattle weather was uh, my preferred environment. But joking aside, um, for the science, I really have enjoyed being at the center of the brain capital of biotech and entrepreneurial spirit here in Boston. Seattle, when I first moved there in the late 90s, um, there was a, a fair amount of biotech going on there. I think, you know, we saw with the financial downturn, we saw some of that biotech sort of exit. Some of the big companies are still uh, in that space, but it's nowhere near as densely populated as uh, we are here in Cambridge. So certainly when I was looking to move to the West Coast, to the East Coast, Boston or Cambridge specifically was uh, top of my list. Oh, that's great. And now that you've been uh, with Pandion uh, since it's starting, would love to learn a little bit about maybe the current landscape of autoimmune diseases and the conventional approaches and therapies that people are pursuing today. Yeah, so we've we've really come a long way. So I joined Immunex in the late 90s, right around when Embril was finishing up its phase three clinical trials. And to be present 
in a company where something as transformative as the TNF inhibitors were turning out to be was it really influenced how I think about drug discovery and development. Um, so I was lucky enough to see the wonderful impact on arthritis patients that this TNF inhibitor had. We now have a number of different TNF inhibitors which provide a lot of choice for patients. Since that time, the investment in biologics has also increased with not just biotechs being interested in biologics, but also big pharma really um, sort of entering that area. And so there are a number of opportunities for patients to think about different approaches to um, receiving therapy. So most recently, we've had a lot of focus on cytokine inhibitor therapies, though we've seen great success with some of the IL-17 inhibitors, IL-23 inhibitors, and some of the more specialized inhibitors like TSLP inhibitors for some of the other TH2 type autoimmune diseases. So there's a lot of advances we've made over the past 20 years. And now, more recently, in the last uh, handful of years, we've seen a big influx in small molecule drug discovery, small molecules that are coming in and intervening in those uh, cytokine pathways and affording patients another alternative, um, their treatments. I think there's pros and cons of biologics and small molecules. So with biologics, you generally have exquisite selectivity, but it um, can be a burden um, to deliver or to be the patient receiving the biologics. I think the small molecules offer an opportunity for um, oral therapy, so pills, which is much more attractive. However, there can sometimes be some concerns with some of the side effects that can occur when small molecules. And so in all of our drug discovery, whether it's biologics or small molecules, there's always a balance between the benefit and the risk. So patients have a lot of choices now, but there's still a fair amount of unmet need. We do have a number of patients who achieve responses, a number of patients who do go into remission, but we still have large cohorts of patients for whom there just isn't a therapy. And some of it is we actually can't dose those patients for long enough or with high enough doses because we can't get enough drug to the site or we're constrained by not being able to dose high enough because of some of the um, off-target side effects. So that sort of really is what motivated me along with my co-founders at Pandian Therapeutics. I um, connected very early with Alan Crane, who's a venture partner at Polaris. He'd been working on this idea of localized immune modulation for um, a year or so, really thinking about it. And I met him for coffee. Um, I was highly embarrassed that as someone with more than 20 years experience, I hadn't really thought about how to target my biologics to an organ. And so after that first coffee, I was completely smitten. And we ended up having numerous coffees after that and decided to um, launch Pandian Therapeutics. And here we are today, a couple of years later, and we have our first drug heading to the clinic at the end of this year. Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations. So I wanted to actually ask, um, you, you had said that the modality approach for Pandion is a bispecific. And most people, when they think bispecifics, they may be thinking of two single chains or two fabs. Um, and I believe Pandion's approach is a little bit different. So could you describe to us the bispecific approach specifically and then and why you chose that? Yes. Yeah. So there's the last decade or so, we've seen many different bispecific or even multi-specific antibodies come into use. Most bispecifics really, as you mentioned, have two different fab ends. So they might target cytokine X and cytokine Y. And by delivering a bispecific, you can neutralize both of those cytokines with one molecule. So we call that the top end of the molecule or the effector end of the molecule. And for us, we're not really trying to target two different cytokines. We're trying to 
do something at that top end of the molecule that modulates the immune system. And really, we're trying to target a cell. So we're not trying to soak up cytokines. We're really trying to send a signal into the cell at that top end. Our bispecifics refer to the bispecificity by adding something on at the bottom end of the molecule. And that is how we tether our molecules. So we use the top end to alter the immune system. And the bottom end is designed to target that molecule to the tissue. So we call it tissue tethering, tissue targeting. That bottom end of the molecule really is what drives that immune modulator to the space where it has to act. So it is a little bit different than traditional bispecifics. So we have the effector end and the tissue tether end, or otherwise known as the top end and the bottom end to lay people. And is there something special in that design that gives the potential for rebalancing immune homeostasis at the local site that you could maybe tell us a little bit more about? Yeah, so it's it sounds very straightforward to have a top end and a bottom end. Maybe I'll talk about the top end first because that's probably a little bit easier. So the top end is an immune modulator. We're not trying to block things, we're trying to activate things, whether we activate Treg cells or we activate inhibitory receptors on effector cells. So we call these agonist antibodies. So it is possible to do that systemically, but we really feel that being able to send those activating or agonist signals locally in the tissue will be of greater benefit because we can restore that homeostasis, induce tolerance and have that tissue preservation. For the bottom end of the molecule, we actually don't want to have any function at all. We're really using the binding of that bottom end of the molecule just to get that effector function to the tissue and just to bind there and stay there so that we can induce and restore that homeostasis. So nothing um, particularly fancy other than we spend a lot of time thinking hard about how to make these bispecifics so that they're manufacturable, robust. We have to do a lot of screening to make sure that the attributes that we end up with in our drug candidate are really amenable to longevity in the tissue. So we don't want molecules that fall off. We don't want molecules that internalize. So it's really, it sounds straightforward to have something with no function, but actually finding something with no function and truly no function takes a little bit more effort than probably I even anticipated at the beginning. (laughs) Sounds like you're very much trying to thread the needle, right? From a biological perspective. I'm also curious, you know, when you look at uh, manufacturing biologics, we often read that 40, 50% of the cost of a given medicine is the CMC and, and the manufacturing of it. Now that you guys are creating uniquely designed, right, and designer bisocific antibodies, how does that play into the manufacturability of said compounds? Yeah, so that's uh, actually, there's unfortunately for others, um, there's a lot of precedent where these molecules are much harder to make. And so we, for our bispecifics, have chosen to go to a little bit more of a boutique manufacturing partner so that we can actually fine tune and make sure that we make these fancier molecules in a robust manner and not just sort of put them in at one end and hope something comes out at the other end. And there is a lot of history whereby specifics fall apart. So part of our approach actually was when we were deciding how to make our antibodies, we chose to work with a partner who had a phage library that had really been de-risked in terms of potential liabilities that are often associated with poor manufacturability. So we didn't want to have a great antibody that we fell in love with, only to find that we couldn't make it later. So right up front, we started thinking about manufacturability because there is nothing more depressing as a drug developer to have something that works great 
but falls apart as soon as you put it into a person. So all the way through, we've, uh, we have a great um, protein engineer who had worked at one of the big companies um, around town who really has transformed how we're making our biospecifics. It, so it takes us um, a little bit longer because we do like to check all along the way that we have robust molecules that are withstand manufacturing and uh, dosing. So, you know, as uh, someone who's worked in bigger companies like Amgen and Biogen, you know, some of the most hallowed biotech companies, Genentech, you know, uh, in, in the world, uh, and then now is sort of the pioneer and founder of a fast-growing biotech here in Boston, I'm sure there's probably different leadership skills that are needed at different stages of a business, as well as different stages of maturity of a pipeline as well. So I'd love to learn a little bit about your approach to team building and leadership across these different sizes and scales in the biotech industry. Yeah, so that's a good question. And uh, one of the things I'm often asked is how to contrast working in a large company with a small company. And I would say most of the time it's very similar. And uh, the biggest difference is probably I spend much less time in gratuitous meetings that are not really worth very much um, at the small company. But my actual leadership and um, team building approach is very identical from when I first built my very first department probably 20 years ago. That the philosophy that I had then still holds true now. So I do think when you're recruiting, it's really important to think about how the team fits together. And by that, I really focus on trying to have people with different approaches, different backgrounds. So we all use the word diversity, sort of uh, it's thrown around a lot right now. But when I think about diversity, it's really diversity of approach and thinking. I'm a very quick and fast decision maker. So I need to make sure I have at least one and preferably more than one slow 24-hour decision maker um, on my team. So actually, that was my first recruit. So employee number two is my counterbalance who likes to mull things over. I, you know, quite happy to make my decision. But actually, I really wait 24 hours before I move forward on executing something to make sure I've got that sort of diverse approach to thinking. And as I've built departments and built departments across sites, when I worked at Amgen, I worked, I had groups in Seattle and in Thousand Oaks in California, actually. And and the approach there was the same as it is in my little tiny team now at Pandian Therapeutics. So really trying to encourage a matrixed environment. So yes, we have reporting lines. I think that's great for administrative um, responsibilities. But in terms of the actual work that gets done, ensuring that everyone has some skin in the game in everything that's going on in the company. And so really that to me is the secret sauce in building a team, whether it's with a department in a large company or the whole company as we are at Pandian Therapeutics. And it's very important to me who I hire as leaders to make sure that they embrace that philosophy of working in a matrixed environment because not everyone wants to. You know, I think that we all know many people who are leaders who like to um, build teams around them. Anyone who comes to me and thinks that their value is equivalent to the number of people they have reporting to them sends alarm bells off in my head. Um, In fact, you can be very influential and it's your leadership is really your sphere of influence, not the number of people who you have um, reporting to you. So I'm really um, happy. So my first two hires were a protein engineer and a biologist, both of whom had experience in large companies. So we were all experiencing the small company environment together. So that's been great as a learning experience. I've just added um, another really talented individual who had a little bit of biotech experience. Most of their experience was in um, academia, and it's great to sort of mold that person into um, the environment. But I do think when you build a team and you want a strong team, it doesn't matter where you're doing it. You need to have the same combination or the same starting material and make sure that everyone's headed in the same direction. 
quick follow-up question on, on leadership. As a woman leader, and also as someone who's served both in the biotech leadership role, but also on boards, um, any special advice for women in science and uh, your thoughts on leadership for women? Yeah, it's um, so I spend a lot of my spare time when I'm not working with women's groups, women in science groups. And so there's a couple which help me and then there's a couple where I feel I can give back to the community. So one of the organisations I've been involved with for many years is West. Uh, So I've been on the board for I think four or five years. I was a president. Um, Three years ago we rotate presidency. And that organisation is really committed to trying to build a community and a network for early to mid-career women. That's the point at which many women drop out of science. So when pressures start coming in, faculty positions start coming up, leadership roles in industry, and then you've got the competing um, outside of work influences, I think they more negatively affect women. And so up until mid-career, I think we see about a 50-50 split with men and women. And it's after that stage that we see the number of women drop off. So some of it is it's hard, so we need to make it easier for women. And some of it is how are women perceived. And so, you know, oftentimes the skills that one has as a woman are viewed as not as effective as some of the stronger leadership skills. Or there are other women who have very strong leadership skills and that's viewed as not very attractive. So we spend a lot of time with West trying to sort of tease that apart and encourage a community and build that network at that very early stage. I think you also mentioned about being on boards. And so one of the things I've been very active in is um, a biodirector forum. This is um, women who have board positions. So we spend, uh, we get to dinner on regular occasions once a quarter and we sort of share experiences about what it's like to be a woman on a board. So um, I have one board where I'm the only female and that's quite different from a board where the CEO is also a female. And so there's two of us in the room. And the dynamic is um, very different. And so, you know, you ask about advice. I think my best advice is sort of play it by ear and figure out who are your allies on the board, whether they're male or female, and spend a lot of time listening, but engaging, not just listening and uh, sitting back. But to even get to that stage, I think there are some barriers that women need to overcome. And so I'm a big fan of making sure that people have a network. Um, I certainly had a network. I think I accidentally fell into it. Um, I was very invested in making sure I kept a foot in the academic world as I developed my industry career. But actually how that has served me well is that I have an industry network and an academic network. And I highly encourage people to get involved in professional societies. This is one way to make sure that you have a number of people who you can speak to, um, who can speak about you as well. Because at the end of the day, even though Um, we might all have equivalent skills many of the top leadership positions and board positions come from networks rather than from people applying for jobs so I do think building that network ensuring you meet others who are similar to you is a big strength and something I would advocate everyone should do male or female I've got a quick question there, which is, you know, we've seen over the past 10 to 20 years, the work culture and environment change, both with new generations, but then also sort of new expectations, as you've articulated. So one example is, you know, my father is a professor in the business school uh, back where I'm from. He's obviously a, a slightly older generation than my wife, who's actually a professor here at Boston University in the medical school. And so I think I've even seen just juxtaposing those two time frames, differences in environment for women and their ability to be able to balance work and life and to be able to excel in their careers. In the context of biotech, however, since you've seen it now for 20 or 30 years, 
Can you give us a sense of how that environment has changed from your time at Genentech and Amgen to now running a biotech company? Has it become better and easier for a woman in the modern environment? Yeah, so I would say yes and no. So that's sort of the the quick answer. So it really depends. I think that forward-thinking companies realized a number of years ago that actually to attract the best talent, there would need to be some changes in terms of making the environment more inclusive for people who didn't fit the older stereotype of elderly and male. Um, And so I think that we did see some um, real investment from a number of companies. Actually, I was very lucky to participate in a number of programs at Biogen that were directed around women in science and actually women on boards. Women in Bio now has taken Biogen's program, which was designed to put women on boards. So I do think that the companies who have fared well and have more diversity really spent some time thinking about how to create that diversity. I think, I don't know if uh, everyone saw the news that Vertex now has equal gender balance um, in their C-suite, which is really exciting to see. So if you had asked me this question yesterday, I would say we probably still have a ways to go. Um, now we have a very good example here in Boston where actually we're seeing some of these changes come to fruition. But I do think it depends. I'm, you know, as anyone who has worked in biotech, we're all approached by about a number of different opportunities. And I've been pretty pointed in opportunities that have come my way where I take a look, see who the leadership team is, the management team and the board. And actually, I have been quite blatant in saying I'm not really very interested in going to work in an environment where there is such lack of diversity, because it's not just diversity of um, gender, there's just diversity of styles and opinions. Um, So things have changed, but not everywhere. I think the companies that are smart and want to be innovative really try and figure out how to recruit those innovative people. Well, it's good news about the Vertex. Yeah, (laughs) it's very good news. So I wanted to ask a question about challenges. Um, So you talked about the first coffee with Alan Crane and thinking about how to target the early biology all the way to the manufacturing side of things. But as you think about your role at Pandion, what were the top challenges you would say that you faced and you overcame? And if, as you unlock those, are there things that in the process of of Pandion unlocking those that you foresee that that could help the industry going forward, you know, if you sort of think five to 10 years that if as we get better at doing this, well, I can foresee that, you know, we could be doing X, Y, or Z in, in a decade. Yeah, so it's, it's really been a big learning experience. And actually, the hardest thing I've done is name the company. <laughs> that was the most traumatic thing. Um, and actually, I had to rely on my husband, who's a liberal arts major and has a far larger vocabulary than me, to, um, to come up with the name. Um, but joking aside, I think we're really an exciting time in the startup world. I think the plethora of incubators that we have around make the ability to turn an idea into an experiment very easy right now. So even as I look back three years, there were far fewer incubators around. So I think just the infrastructure around here really enables that. But I think really what you're asking is, what about technologies? What are we doing? How can we more quickly make medicines? So we're still using fairly traditional, cutting edge, but traditional antibody screening approaches to identify our molecules and 
the effector end, we have to screen for function because we want function modulation. And actually the tether end, we have to screen because we don't want function. And I think as, you know, if I had a wish list of where we would be 20 years from now, it would be able to do some of that screening more easily in silico. As I look at where small molecule drug discovery and development has gone, we're no longer tied by the physical screening process. There is in silico screening and, and we're starting to see some antibody companies um, who are able to do some of this epitope mapping to really in silico epitope mapping to sort of really help drive where do you want an antibody to dock. I think that's a little bit easier for antagonists or blocking antibodies because we know as long as we get in that space and prevent the ligand from binding to the receptor, we can have a blocking antibody. For us, with our effector molecules, we're trying to agonize, so it's a little bit more complicated. We don't yet quite understand how do you always drive an agonist signal into a cell surface receptor, but that would be my dream 20 years from now if someone can figure out how I can uh, sit at a computer and design (laughs) antibodies rather than necessarily necessarily have to spend a lot of time in the lab. In that circumstance, at Pandion, are you guys investing in data science teams or uh, your own sort of simulation environments to be able to accelerate innovation in that area? Is that an area that you guys are looking at? Yeah, so we're um, very interested in that. We have not yet built that internally, and instead we've chosen to partner with people on the outside who have that expertise. So I think we're still... 28 people right now. So I think for us to um, have a cohort that was really data science is only driven would not necessarily allow us to recruit the top individuals. So we've chosen to do that through partnerships, but we're very interested. We spend a lot of time working with partners on some of our modeling, mathematical modeling to really try and understand what sort of affinities do we need at the top end and bottom end of our molecule? What sort of doses do we think we're going to require given the bispecificity um, of our molecules? So we have that sort of modeling on one end and then anyone who's working in biology and any I guess sort of drug discovery area I think we're all very heavily dependent on mining data whether it's our own or publicly available um, information to try and sort of figure out where is that needle in the haystack. And so we are heavily invested in um, looking for exploratory biomarkers uh, as we're doing tissue-targeted local immune modulation. A lot of the biomarkers that are used looking at blood biomarkers, they're really not going to be applicable to us. We really need to figure out what can we look at um, in tissues. But again, we're doing most of that through partnerships, using our brain power to think about the local immune modulation and using the technologies of others that we can cherry pick and not build too much internally yet till we really see what's going to be successful. Well, that's that's really impressive because I think it gives you guys the opportunity to access best of breed, but then also, especially in the formative years of a biotech efficiency, right, and scale where you can sort of tactically focus on one project and then sort of redirect energies based on the results, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and again, I think this environment that we have in Boston and Cambridge really is conducive to being able to access some of these bleeding edge technologies that, you know, some of them are going to pan out and some of them are not. But unless we try them collectively as an industry, I think we won't make those big leaps forward. Awesome. Well, Joe, wanted to thank you again for being on the on the podcast today. I think we all enjoyed both learning about Pandion and your background, as well as the future that bispecifics hold for autoimmune diseases. Thank you so much, Joe. Well, thank you very much. This was fun. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai and me, Samtha Kundu. It's produced by Jean Merlane and edited by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast, Biotech 2050, and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.